join me in Acts chapter 12, if you would. Acts chapter number 12. Uh, technically, we'll pick up verse 6. We're going to back up to verse 5. Um, I'm looking around. I know most of you were here last week, so I don't think I need to do a long review. Uh, thank you for being here this morning. Acts chapter number 12. Uh, so we finished off chapter 11. There was a man named Agabus who made a prophecy to this brand new church. Not brand new, maybe a year, between a year and two years old, up in Antioch, 300 miles from Jerusalem. And the church is expanding. It's expanding not only geographically, but in the kind of people. And so now Gentiles are fully brought into the church. And there's this Gentile church up in Antioch. And we're going to come back to that in chapter 13 but now, uh, last week we kind of ignored the chapter divisions because we had some unusual spacing back in November. And so last week we hit verse 27 of chapter 11 all the way through verse 5 of chapter 12. And so if you would, look at your Bible. You're going to have an advantage today if you have your Bible and you have it open. You kind of keep it at this passage. I think we will only branch out a couple of times to another section. Um, but if you have your Bible open, that's going to be key. Let me say this right here at the beginning as well. Uh, this particular passage today is an unusual sermon. I just feel like it's really unusual. Um, and it's telling a story. And so what that means is it's not going to be real thick in clear, obvious theology. And so here's what needs to happen. I'm going to go ahead and warn you. I will be reading between the lines a little bit from time to time because as I've thought about this narrative, this event, these events in chapter 12... I try to picture them, and that's going to come out in, in how I read the text, some things I say, say between verses and all of that. Right now, you ought to be praying, Lord, help me to know the difference between the text and when that guy up there is kind of what he thinks might have happened, that maybe he did or didn't happen. Just pray that God will give you wisdom. But also, ultimately, we're going to try to work out some principles that are in this text um, and we need the Lord's guidance. Uh, so it's not just some God deciding, hey, I read this text and these are the things I think and I want to say. So we want to get the principles that the Lord has for us from the text this morning. And so pray for the Lord's guidance and that you would hear what, the truth. And if I say something that's untrue, that the Lord will block that out of your mind or put something in your mind to counter that. I don't think it's going to happen, uh, but be in prayer to know the difference between uh, what is actual in the text and what may be added to, to kind of hopefully bring the text alive. So here's where we're at. It's chapter number 12. Um, chapter 13, we're going to switch gears a lot. We're heading toward Paul. Before we do, we have this last little episode with Peter. And I've got to tell you, I've told you guys before that I love Paul. He's my favorite besides Christ in the whole Bible. Peter is really growing on me, and this week he grew on me some more, and I, I'm really growing in my appreciation of him, and, and you'll see that in a moment right out of the gate, just something that he is doing on the night before he's supposed to be killed. So he's supposed to be killed. What's, this, what's going on? There's a king, the grandson of Herod the Great, who killed the Bethlehem babies. His grandsons, one of them, is named Herod Agrippa I. We don't even know why. He just starts persecuting the church, and he's treating some of them violently. We don't have their names. But it got so bad that he actually has one of the 12 apostles. In fact, one of the three, what we would call the inner circle. Peter, James, and John. James and John are brothers. And they get in on some things that the others don't get in on. But Herod, Agrippa, ends up killing with a sword, apparently cutting the head of James off. So now we know that the apostles are not immortal. They're going to die, and they're not to be replaced. And so James is dead. And the Jews like that. 
And so they like this new persecution this king is doing to the Jews, uh, doing, doing to the church. And so when Herod Agrippa understands that the Jews like that, it's kind of an approval, like, hey, I'm gonna, if you like me killing James, then he goes and arrests Peter. It's like, hey, he's one thing, but let's get the, the most well-known of the apostles, kind of the unstated leader. And so he arrests him, and he has every intention he's going to do the same thing to him. But it was during March, April, and it's during Passover. And so there's Passover followed by seven days of unleavened bread, and there's an eight-day feast. And during that time, you're not supposed to have executions. And so Herod's going to honor that. And so we're just going to put him in prison for a little while. And we're going to count down the days. And then, in Herod's mind, being a good politician, he's got his October surprise. The last thing I'm going to send these people home with is more favor on my part. They're going to love me because I'm going to kill Peter. And we're going to kind of put a squash in the end to this church thing. Because now the church is invited and bringing Gentiles in. And they're not even circumcised. And this is really just too much for them to take, apparently. And so Peter's in prison. And Herod has assigned four squads of soldiers to watch this one guy. So there's these other guards in the prison. But like 16 men on four rotations. Four sets of four just for this one. This is a very prized prisoner and he's in prison for a few days we don't know how many days but the end of the feast has finally arrived we finished off last in verse number five would you look at verse number five and then you'll see it on the screen so we have this two things so peter was kept in prison that's one scene but earnest prayer for him was made to god by the church now we'll pause right there for a moment This is where we finished last week, and probably half of our message was on the second half of verse 5, right? Spent a lot of time talking about prayer, and I alluded to it this way. Effective prayer has certain qualifications. I I could name 10, but last week we gave you four. So here's where I, I need to do a quick review, and I want to just begin by clarifying something, okay? Several of you were here last week. We learned from verse 5, the second part, that prayer is reserved for Christians, An unsaved person could ask God to give them light and to reveal himself and show them what they need to be saved, and God will respond to that prayer. But just to pray general, generic prayers, God is not receiving that. Prayer is reserved only for Christians. Prayer was made by the church. Okay, that's a universal truth. That's a fact. We also learned that prayer has to be made. You can have good intentions all you want. You can have this wish list on the inside, but you're going to have to turn those into words to, to the Lord. And we learned that for prayer to be effective, it has to be to God. Like this morning, some of you were in Sunday school. Picture if I'm in my office and you're in Sunday school, and I am in my office saying some words, and I'm surprised you don't respond to what I said because my words were had to do with you. You may be like, you can't get upset that I didn't do what you're talking in there. I'm over here in Sunday school. You didn't talk to me. And that's how some people pray. They literally just are like, Saying things to nothing, to no one, just kind of thinking thoughts, not really directing. Prayer, for it to be effective, has to be to God. And so those three things, universal truths. But the one we spent some time on, they had earnest prayer, fervent. I talked about ardent, strenuous, like stretching ourselves out. Um, again, zealous, passionate, energetic. And so I'm not going to re-preach that message, but let me just say this. I want to make a clarification. That kind of prayer, when I use that, I'm particularly talking about prayer closet prayer. And it could be corporate prayer. But what 
I don't want anyone to walk away from is to think, well, then my going through life, what Jeff calls um, daily fellowship prayer, I guess I can't do that because I don't have time on the go to get all passionate and zealous and, and super ultra focused on the Lord. I'm just, I'm just going down the road and I'm, I want to have a conversation. Listen, don't let what I said last week think that you can't be just relational in your walking with the Lord through the day. So I don't want to take away from daily fellowship prayer. That is still one of the three great types of prayer that I believe are in the Bible. So with that as our backdrop and kind of a clarification, would you join me back in the text? So Peter's in prison. You got the scene. Herod intends to kill him at the end of this. Um, But he made a mistake. He allowed time for the church to pray. Verse number 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, I'm going to go ahead and jump ahead in my notes, in my mind, not in my notes, but in, not in the screen, but in my notes, I'm going, to, I'm going to contend that we're actually, I'm going to throw this, if I had time, I believe I could defend that this is probably somewhere around 4 a.m. Okay, you're like, what in the world? Just look at the verse. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, so I, I don't want us to necessarily go into this text thinking, oh, we're talking about probably 6 p.m. the night before, maybe 9 p.m. No, I think we're talking about literally just it's almost day. You're like, where do you get that from? You'll not see it on the screen. You got your Bible open. Look at verse 18. Now, when day came, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. So what we're about to read, here's, here's a little snippet. I believe that this commotion that happens at daybreak would be a, a shift change. And so we have these four groups of four soldiers assigned specifically to watch this one guy. And so were these shifts all day long? Maybe, but probably they were this, through the night watches. And so the first watch of night would be 6 p.m. to 9, 9 p.m. You, you four guys, all right, you're out, fresh people in. 9 p.m. to midnight. That's shift two. You guys out. Midnight to 3 a.m. That's shift number three. And then shift number four is 3 a.m. until 6 a.m. And so the reason I'm going to say, I ended up explaining it, didn't I? I kind of thought, oh, I'm not going to explain it. Take my word for it. No, I'm kind of explaining why. Because at the daybreak, there's this commotion over what has happened. And I'm going to contend if this was earlier in the night, the shift change would have revealed what has happened. And so it doesn't, you say, what's the point? This man is literally just a few hours in his mind from having his head cut off. Verse 6. So with that as the backdrop, I don't know if any of you, and again, I haven't. And I know of one, there may be more in here. And I mean truly life-threatening surgery. I've had surgeries. I've never had a life like where the percentages are against me. I've never had that. Maybe you have. How did you sleep that night? How do people sleep when they know tomorrow morning early I got to get there and surgery's going to be like, like, what is your mind doing? Watch what this means. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, I'm contending Probably somewhere between 3 and 4 a.m., maybe closer to 4 a.m. Peter was sleeping. Between two soldiers, there's two soldiers in this cell 
Peter's between them sleeping, bound with two chains. Bound with a chain here and a chain here. And sentries before the door were guarding the prison. There's one, there's two, and out there's three, four, and there's this door between them in the cell. And so that's the scene, and he's sleeping. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. But he's sleeping. And a light shone in the cell, but he's sleeping. The light, notice, does not wake him up. How many of you, if, there was, if your light came on in your bedroom, you're like, oh, light comes on in my bedroom, I'm up. Not Peter. There's a light in the cell. Dude is scheduled to die in a couple of hours. He's just sleeping. I kind of like him more and more the more I learn about this fellow. Verse 7. And behold, the angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. That's what woke him up. And apparently this is a little bit of a blow. What's going on? What? He struck him on the side and woke him up saying, get up quickly. Hey, what's what? Get up quickly. What? Yeah, but I got these clink. Oh. And the chains fell off his hands. Yeah, I would get bang. Okay, wow. Oh, oh, I guess I'll get up. Yeah, get up. Let's go. Get up. And the angel said to him, dress yourself. Put on your sandals. You kind of get the sense like he's just kind of like figuring it out. Oh, oh we were going. Dress yourself. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Put the belt on. Tuck, tuck in there. You're going to need the shoes. Oh, you said hurry. Yeah, okay. That's it. But you're going to need shoes. Get all your stuff. You're not coming back is the idea. Verse 8 again, dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Stay, stay with me. Stay with me. This is what the angel. And he went out and followed him. He did not know, this is a little insight into Peter's mind. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. So this angel's doing things, and Peter's following along. And, and what we, we get this insight, like, in his mind, he's not even sure that this is really happening. He's not sure that it is. He thinks this is a vision. So here's what that tells me. Peter, who's just had a vision on a rooftop back in chapter 10, to compare with that tells me now, what, a what is a vision in the Bible like? It's like real life reality. Maybe slightly hazy. This is really happening and he thinks, and he's watching this angel. And I don't know what the angel looked like and I don't know if he's doing the Jedi thing. And the guards are like, I don't know. But whatever, Peter's watching all this and he thinks, I'm, I'm seeing a vision. I'm doing another one of those vision things. No, this is really happening. Verse 10. When they had passed the first and the second guard. That's not talking about the two guys outside the cell. That's the first guard post and then the big second guard post at the front of the prison. Then they came to the iron gate leading into the city. That's a problem. Well, no, not really. It's not, it's not a wrought iron fence. Oh, got a wrought iron fence. No, no. This is an iron gate. Massive. Took a lot of people to open this thing up. It's built to withstand jailbreaks. Verse number 10. They passed the first and the second guard. They came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street. You with me? Stay with me. Let's go over here. And immediately the angel left him. Hey. He just, 
gone. Is he still there? Peter can't see him. Verse 11, when Peter came to himself, the night air, the cool air, it's late March, early April, and all of a sudden, now he's awake. He said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So last week I wasn't sure who are these Jews that were, that were applauding what, what Herod is doing now. This clarifies it was actually just the regular old Jewish people, not just the Jewish leaders. The, the Jewish people are in on it. And Peter knows what's going on. And now he realizes what has happened. He's free on the streets of Jerusalem. Verse 12. When he realized this, like he contemplates, he's thinking about it. Pause right there. Look down at my last verse. You'll not see it on the screen. Look at the last verse I'm going to read. Verse 17, the last sentence. Then he departed and went to another place. He's going to leave Jerusalem. Now verse 12. He's out on the streets. He's ultimately going to depart and leave the city of Jerusalem. But when he realized this, i got something I need to do first. He went to the house of Mary. This is not Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. Now, again, we throw this out. We're not preaching on John Mark, but John Mark's going to come back in chapter 13. Luke is introducing John Mark to us. This is the one who's ultimately going to write the book of Mark. This is Matthew Mark. This is is that Mark. He's going to be an assistant to Peter. He's going to be an assistant to Barnabas and Paul on the first missionary journey. So we're getting just introduced to him. But what we're going to end up saying about his mother is also true of him, if you want to think about it that way. So make a mental note. Look at verse 12. Peter realizes what has happened. He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, he's not knocking at the door of the house, he's knocking at the door of the gateway, implying what's beyond the gateway. What do you think? A courtyard. There would be a door in a gateway that would lead to a courthouse, a courtyard, and then the house would be beyond that. That's the way they did it. Certain, not many, but some houses in Jerusalem were designed. Now back to verse 13. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And again, if I'm throwing it out there, if I'm right, and it's somewhere around 4 in the morning... Who is it? Persecution's going on. Who is it? It's me. Who? It's me. I'm out. Verse 14. Recognizing Peter's voice. Apparently this girl's heard Peter preach or she's heard Peter preach and I know him. Rhoda. It's me. I'm out. Rec- Again, y'all do know that I just read between the lines, right? That's just making sure. But I'm trying to picture this this way. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy. Is this girl a Christian? Has she been praying? Or has she just got such a good boss lady, Mary? Whatever Mary's interested in, I'm interested in that. And Mary's been praying. And this means a lot to her, so it means a lot to me. I think both of those are true. I believe Rhoda's a Christian. And she has a great boss lady, recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. Hey, he's out. And they said to her, yay, he's out. No, you're out of your mind. Girl, Girl, are you out of your mind? 
What are you? He's out. He's out. He's at the gate. You have lost your mind. Verse 15 continues. But there's going to be these continuing actions here. But she kept insisting. No, no, no. He, she kept insisting that it was so. They kept saying it is his angel. Let me go ahead and mention right here. Not everybody in the New Testament has accurate doctrine. And you're like, what in the world is this? They didn't have the New Testament. This is not in there as a doctrine like, oh, wow. Peter has an angel and this is his angel that's like, so Again, I'm going to get ahead of myself a little bit. I'll go ahead and do it now. Like, what is this? There are some theories, but these, this apparently points to some strange thoughts that people had at that time. Matthew 18, verse 10. I'll just throw it out. We're not going to track it down now. We preached through Matthew a couple of years ago. And when we were there, there is a possibility that Matthew 18 does allude that believers have a guardian angel. I probably lean that way. That would mean that I have an angel assigned to me. It may not mean that. It at least means... Christians are of the group of people that angels serve us. But if it means we have a guardian angel, then they believe that Peter's guardian angel is there. He's still over in prison. If that's the case, then why is the angel stuck at the gate? That makes sense. Others say that they believed, had a belief, people of that day, that a person's spirit could like take their form of appearance and show up like almost as an ill omen like right before they die. Again, if that's the case, why is it stuck at the, at the gate? Some go so far as to think this is probably what they're thinking. Oh, no, this is horrible. Peter's dead spirit is talking to us from beyond the grave. I don't know which one. All I know is don't base your theology on their wacko thinking. Back to verse 15. They said to her, you're out of your mind. She kept insisting it's so. They kept saying it is his angel. So she kept saying, they kept saying, in verse 15, Peter continued, <laughs> bless his heart. Hello, hey, what in, Rhoda, where in the world she got my knee? Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him, and were amazed. Peter, it's, but motioning to them with his hand, I warned you, you got to make a difference between what I'm doing and what's actually in the text. But isn't that a lot fun? No, I'm kidding. All right. Verse 17. They're amazed. But motioning them with his hand, be silent. He described to him how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Yeah. I was in prison just a little bit ago. Angel popped me on the side. I wake up. He says, get up quickly. I'm like thinking, what in the world? Chains fall off. I get up. He tells me to start dressing. I do. He says, follow me. I start following. We go past the little. Wow, they didn't get me. We go past the first, the second. All of a sudden, well, there's the gate, but the gate opens on its own. I'm out on the street. Then he's gone, and I think, man, I'm getting out of here. But before I do that, I need to go by there and talk to you guys. And so, verse 17, he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And again, I'm reading I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. I'll go and do it now. You wait a minute. James was killed in verse 2. James said, no, this is a different James. This is the Lord's half-brother, James. This is the half-brother of the Lord who has become, in essence, the lead pastor of the whole church in Jerusalem. And then the end of verse number 17. So Peter says, hey, make sure James and the brothers, the brothers and sisters know that I'm out, that God answers prayer, and I've been delivered, and God still looks out for us. 
And the end of verse number 17, then he departed and went to another place. Well, that took a long time to read that text, didn't it? Would you notice a few things? We'll see how far we get this morning. Number one, would you notice that Peter displays peace? And I just, as we go through, again, this is going to be a very different message. I want you, you ought to be asking the Lord, Lord, show me what I need out of each one of these sections. We'll see how far we get today. Peter displays peace that is rooted in faith. And the peace is obvious to see. Notice if you would back again in verse number 5. If you got your, your Bible open, you, you could really look before that. But we get hints in verse number 6. So here's the scene. Watch, watch this. He's not just, Peter's not just in a cell. That's bad enough. He's got a chain on him. He's got a chain. You're not going, the chain is to a soldier. But he doesn't have one chain. He's got two chains. Like three people and he's in the middle, man. He's not going anywhere. Humanly speaking, you're done. You're toast. And there's this door. Oh, and then there's two more guys right outside. Like all of that beefed up security just for him. Why? I don't know. I'm going to throw this out. Maybe Herod Agrippa heard about what happened back in Acts chapter 5 where Peter and his buddies escaped in the middle of the night out of this same prison. And in his mind, Herod's mind, that's not going to happen on my watch. Those local bumbling idiots on the Sanhedrin let him get away. That's not happening. Four guys, four shifts, make sure. And it's working day after day after day until they get to the final night. If this... As this scene unfolds, in my mind, I'm about to read between the lines. Here's, I'm trying to picture this. And I add a little humor in my mind because the Lord adds some humor in our text. Can you kind of see, as Peter walks in the very first day, James has had his head cut off. And here comes Peter. And they're opening the cell again. Oh, this one again. What are you talking about? Oh, this is the same cell I was in before. Really? Yeah, me and my buddy, John, we were in this same one. Well, now on another occasion... Me and the rest of the guys, there was a bunch of us, we were in the big one right over there. Until an angel came in the middle of the night and delivered us. What are the chances of that happening again? But Peter is sleeping. This is, uh, I find this extraordinary. I'm not saying these things lightly. That this man is, I believe, where are your thoughts? You would think he would be thinking in the morning, am I going to be paraded? Am I going to be beaten? Or am I just going to be like quick? I'm going to cut my head off. Is it going to do to me what he did to James? Is it going to be painful? What exactly is heaven like? I know I'm going to see the Lord, but this is it. My life's over. He's not thinking any of those things. This man is, and I mean, he's in a deep sleep. The light is on in the cell, but that, I mean, he's in a deep sleep. He's groggy. He thinks he's seeing a vision. This man's in a deep sleep. He's, I mean, he's sleeping really good. And I'm going to contend that this man is experiencing the peace of God that passes all understanding. This is not normal. This shouldn't be happening. Why is this man just two or three hours from all signs, just life on earth is over, man. And we're not playing games. So I ask you, if your good friend who did exactly what you, you do and who is exactly what you are, just had his head cut off and we're only waiting until the feast is over and your head's going to be cut off. If that's you in just a couple hours, would you be able to sleep? Could you sleep? Why is Peter able to sleep? So I'm trying to think about this this way. So I came up with two or three things. Number one, is Peter just so anchored in the sovereignty of God? Like, Is it, this, is it simply this? 
I know who I am. I know whose I am. He's in control. And if this is what he wants to happen, I know where I'm going. Maybe that's it. Is it number two? I know my God's track record. This is my fourth time being arrested in this area. First time I was arrested, me and John were taken in front of the Sanhedrin. They threatened us. Don't you ever teach preaching in the name of Jesus again. We say we're going to do it. And they say you do it, we're going to beat you. And like, well, we got an agreement. We're going to do it. And sure enough, they let them go. Second time, all the apostles are arrested. But an angel comes in the middle of the night, releases them. But strangely, the angel tells them to go back into the temple after being released in the middle of the night, go preach in the temple, which they do the next morning. They get rearrested, so third time. But in that time, a guy named Gamaliel, who's on the council, ends up being used by God to kind of keep them from being killed, though they do get beaten. Now, here it is the fourth time. Is it this simple? God's track record is he always gets me out of this. I'm just going to sleep. But if you're taking notes, I want to propose to you. I know it took a long time to get to this first note. But I want to propose to you that is it possible that Peter's peace came from a unique promise that God made to him in John chapter 21? Would you hold your spot here? Write your note if you're taking that. But flip over if you would. John chapter 21. This is the scene. Jesus is resurrected. Jesus in his resurrected body is having a meal with the disciples on at the, the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And finally, he and Peter take a private walk together. Y'all remember this scene, right? Peter, you love me more than these. Peter, do you agape love me? Lord, you know that I phileo love you. You know I have great affection for you. Feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Do you have agape love like the deepest, most sacrificial, the deepest, greatest kind of love? Lord, you know I have phileo for you. You know I'm very fond and I have great affection for you. Tend to my lambs. Peter, do you follow me? Do you have great affection? Lord, you know everything. Why do you keep asking me this? He's troubled. Lord, you know that. But look at verse number 18, a very strange scene. Look at verse 18, John 21. And it's prefaced by these two words. Jesus says, truly, truly. Like Peter, pay attention. Wake up. Note this. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says to Peter, when you were young... You used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted to go. Peter, you remember when you were young? You remember you were a young guy? You were a kid, you are a teenager, early 20s. You started dating your wife. You remember that? Like, yeah, like anything you wanted to do. You loved to go fishing. You liked to jump in the lake and swim. You just, anything you wanted to do. You had great freedom. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands. And another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And then John writes parenthetically, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter, follow me. So here it is again. Peter, listen, truly, truly, when you were young, you used to dress yourself, walk wherever you wanted to. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands. And tradition tells us that Peter was also crucified, though upside down, with his hands stretched out. And we know that the Lord is projecting and prophesying what kind of death Peter is going to die. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. So there's quite a few things, and I'm not preaching the text, but did you catch why we, did y'all catch why we turned there? Did everybody catch it? What word? Old. So he knows when he was young, freedom. When I'm old, I'm going to lose my freedom. I'm going to die like Jesus died. So in my mind, again, reading between the lines, I'm wondering on this last night, and he's scheduled to die the next day, I'm just wondering, did Peter say, 
Shift change, 3 a.m. Hey, how's your, how's your kid? You said he was sick the other day. He's actually doing better. Yeah, thanks for asking. Well, I prayed for him. Yeah. You doing all right? Yeah, we're good. Hey, fellas, quick question. Yeah. Am I old? What? what kind of stupid question. Am I old? You're not young, dude. I know. I'm not young. I'm not young. Am I old? I wouldn't say you're old. You're 40-some. No, you're not old. I didn't think so. I'm going to bed, boys. Yeah, good luck. We've seen a lot of people try to sleep. No, I'm going to sleep. I'm out. He just rests. MacArthur writes the following. Maybe you're here this morning, and maybe you're watching online, and this is you. You're like, Jeff, I am such an anxious person. I am so bound up all the time. There's a man about to die, supposedly, the next, within hours, and he's just sleeping. Deep sleep. He's not worried about it. MacArthur writes the following. Believers who learn to trust God's promises and his past performance usually sleep soundly. Believers who learn to trust God's promises... So I can't say for certain that this is what, but I wouldn't be surprised if Peter's not thinking, I know this, the Lord told me I'm going to be killed when I'm old. I don't think I'm old. This ain't happening. I'm going to die by crucifixion. I'm not getting my head cut off. So this isn't it. So I don't know what's going to happen. We're down the last little bit, and the Lord tends to kind of wait till the end, but this isn't how I go. So I'm just going to sleep and see what happens. I think... So here's my challenge to you on this first point. We spent a long time on the first point. Christians, we need to spend our lives learning the promises of God and rehearsing them. They're no good if they're, I mean, the promises are going to happen. But there are certain promises of God that have their greatest effect on us only as we rehearse them over and over and over. So much so, I'm going to project this to you. Whatever area you're like, I am so bound up with some anxiety. You need to find the promise of God in the word of God that deals with what you were dealing with. And then just learn it, memorize it, rehearse it, think about it over and over and over. So much so, I mean, till it affects you physiologically. And I mean, you can't fake it. Not the old, yeah, I'm doing a lot better now. I mean, where your heart rate comes down, your blood pressure comes down, your shoulders are relaxed, and you're sleeping. You're like, how would anybody do that? Learning the promises of God, meditating on them, rehearsing them over and over till they become part of you, till you rest in the Lord. Maybe somebody here right now, and you're like, I really want to give to the Lord. But if I do that, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? If that's you, can I encourage you? Go swim around in Matthew 6. Because Jesus, help me out, Jesus said, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then what? All these things will be added to you. So don't be all anxious about what you're going to wear, what you're going to drink, and what you're going to eat. You just obey God, make that, I'm, you know what, I'm going to obey God, he's going to be my focus, him and his kingdom and his righteousness. And Jesus says all these things will be added to you. There's a lot going on in the world. I got a son in Marine Corps infantry. And so I tend to keep tabs on what the nations and the idiot rulers around the world are doing. And it can get you all worked up, right? 
If that's you and you're like, oh, I'm so everything, it's like chaos all over the world. Spend some time swimming around in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 9 through 31. And here's what you'll find. The nations are literally a drop in the bucket. You've got a bucket full of water and the nations, the nations is a drop. They're like dust on the scales. And the rulers, the Lord sets them up and takes them down. The reason I pray to God is because he is sovereign over the nations and the rulers. Maybe somebody watching online or here this morning, the reason you can't sleep at night is because truly someone has done you wrong. A group of people or a person, they have really done you wrong. And it's really bothering you. Could I remind you what Romans chapter 12, verse number 19, what does Romans 12, 19 say about vengeance? Vengeance, listen, hey, 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 vengeance, that's mine, says the Lord. That's mine. I get to do that. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. You don't do the repaying, Lord. You saw? You did? You did? Oh, you want to handle it. Okay, well then I don't, you don't need to handle it. Vengeance is mine. You're mine. Let me take care of them in my time. Oh, well, you'll do a better job. Anyway. Yes, I will. You rest. And, of course, that great one, Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Do you need to apply Romans 8, 28 to something in your life that has you bound up? Or maybe every little thing that comes along binds you up. You just need to swim in that and let it affect your blood pressure and your sleep, your heart rate. Number two, much quicker here. God displays power to answer prayer. And this is in verses 7 through 11. We're back in Acts. And you would think I'm going to dig into all this stuff of this great escape. I'm really not. I'm not going to because it's kind of self-explanatory. Does that need to be? There's an angel stood next to him. A light's in the prison. He strikes Peter on the side. He woke him up. Get up quickly in the chains. I don't need to go over line by line. So here's, we read it. We read it slowly. So here's where I want to jump right in. You ready? God has, listen, God has power to answer prayer. And he can answer prayer any way he wants to. Rehearse this. God is omnipotent. God is sovereign. What that means is he doesn't need any help. So I want, to, I want to get this in our minds. God needs no help whatsoever, and yet, this occurred to me this week. Jeff, hang on. When God needs no help, he literally spoke the universe into existence. He just wills things. He just wills it to happen. He doesn't have to do anything. He wants it to happen, and it happens. So what's going on here? This occurs to me. When God created the universe and all the creatures in it, one of the things he did, though sovereign and omnipotent and needs no help, he doesn't need any help, he does employ help. God will use part of his creation to work, do his work for other parts of the creation. God uses parts of his creation to, God uses animals to serve people. God uses trees and minerals to serve people. God uses people to serve animals and to serve the plants and the trees. It's, it's symbiotic. We have our part. They have their part. And God's using, you're doing my work, tending to them. And you're doing my work, serving them. But in all of that, there's this top, most powerful group. And that's what's really clear in chapter 12 of Acts. Would you write this note down? 
If Acts chapter 12 does anything, it presents three realities. Reality number one, angels are real. I want, to, I want you to get that. Don't think, oh, wow, you're one of those preachers. You really take this literally. Oh, it is literal. It's true. Angels are a reality. Reality number two, God uses them. He doesn't have to use them, but God chooses to use them. And number three, they can have tremendous impact in our physical world when they're on an errand for God. So let me repeat that as you're writing it. Angels are real. God uses them, and they can have great impact. I remind you what, what I often do when I'm talking about angels. One angel in 2 Kings chapter 19 kills 185,000. We got 206,000 people in our whole county, 206,000 Andersonians. Put us all together, one angel on an errand from God. By the way, arm us, give us arms and weapons. One angel on an errand from God in one night killed 185,000 of the Assyrian army. They're very powerful. They're real. They're super powerful. We heard about the, the most powerful one on the earth. Unfortunately, does appear to be Satan among us. But then there's this whole other category. There's the Lord Jesus Christ as we sang. A mighty fortress is our God. And so, yes, there's lots of those beings, and we would probably be very frightened if we could actually see what is going on. But angels, very powerful beings. And God, do you understand? Watch. In this escape, there are four physical things, physical obstacles. Any one of which, just one of them, and you'd be done. You'd be toast. One chain on any of us, and we wouldn't escape. I'm going to die in a few hours. I'm going to have my head cut off. We've got a chain. You're not going anywhere. A cell door. Take the chain away. Take the guards away. Sales. Hey! You're not getting out. Add the four guards. Add the other guard posts. If you had no chain on you and you were not in a cell, you were just in the middle of four Roman soldiers with weapons. And if you ever make a move, it's like, we're not going to kill you tomorrow morning. We're going to kill you, right? You have no chance. If you were to get past all them, you got this iron gate. You're not getting past that. It is built to sustain jailbreaks. But for an angel, get up. Yeah, but clink. Let's go. What about the, oh. And what about these, oh, okay. Yeah, I'm starting it, yeah. What about that big, yeah. Like, oh, my bad. Not a problem. This is light work. God has the power to answer prayer. Number three. In verse number 12, we find that Mary stewards God's blessings. Mary's stewardship of God's blessings. Michelle alluded to this earlier, how blessed we are at Graceview. And all of us really need to pay attention. So back in verse 11, fully knowing what was going on, Peter came to himself. Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people, all that they were expecting. Watch verse 12. Pay attention. So I want you, if you've got your Bible open, you have a major advantage. I'm going to ask you a question, and I literally need feedback this morning. So you ready? When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary. And remember what I said, that what is true of Mary is going to be true of John Mark, and it may help explain some things later. I'm going to propose to you that Mary... Is wealthy. Not like a little wealthy. She's wealthy. 
What three words in verses 12 and 13 show us, that's our hint, this lady's wealthy. What's one of those words? The word what? Many. Many people are gathered in her house and praying. Many. What's another word? Servant. This, girl had, this lady has servants, hired people. What's the other one? Gateway. Not the door of the house. Who, who does this sound like? Who does this sound like back in the book of Matthew? There's a gateway that leads into a courtyard. And there's lots of room for many people in there. It sounds like the house of the high priest. High priest would be one of the wealthiest people in all of Jerusalem. Here's a lady appears to be on that side of town with that kind of house. I mean, she's really wealthy. What's God's attitude toward wealth? What is God's attitude toward wealth? We've talked about this before. So Mary is wealthy. It's very clear. But the Bible never presents wealth as something that's bad and evil. Like, oh, it's wrong. It's sinful to be rich. No, it's not. The Bible, no, the Bible says that money is the root of all evil. No, the Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil, which actually means, in context there, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Not literally every sin is attached to loving money. There's other kinds of sin. But there's lots of categories of sin that are, root, that are traced back to loving money. It's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. But money and being rich and wealthy is not sinful. In fact, listen to me. Wealth in the Bible is presented as a blessing. It can be a blessing. I'll propose to you this word. It is a test. Wealth is a test. The Lord is going to test. And he's watching how you're going to handle it. And if you're taking notes, wealth is how you ought to think. It is an opportunity to be God's steward. This is my opportunity. I am God's steward. What a steward does is it takes someone else's possessions and it manages and it handles those and it works with those possessions knowing this when it's all said and done, I'm going to give an account of what I did with those possessions. They're really not mine. They're just kind of loaned to me. And so those who are wealthy in America, those who are wealthy around the world who are Christians, ought to be thinking this way. This is not really mine. It's just loaned to me. I'm going to give an account to God. But it's an opportunity. What a great opportunity to be God's steward. As soon as you've written that, would you follow me? I told you we'd be in two places outside of Acts. So here's the, the other one. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We've hit this before, so we'll touch it quickly. Would you join me? 1 Timothy chapter 6. Quickly. Paul writing to one of his young protégés who's a pastor in Ephesus. He's left him there on purpose to set things in order in that church. Watch what the apostle Paul tells Timothy, the pastor, to do. Verse 17. Hey, Timothy. As for the rich in this present age, all Christians are rich in the next age. But as for the rich in this present age, Timothy, charge them not to be haughty. So number one, what do the wealthy need to glean from the Bible? Don't be haughty. Don't be arrogant, prideful. Think, like, don't let yourself ever internally think you're better because you're wealthy. You're going to see in a moment it is God who richly provides. And you may think, no, 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 I worked for him. Okay, God gave you a skill. He gave you an open door. He, he helped you make that just right connection to that person that really, really set you up. 
Timothy, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. That's number one. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty. We're set. We are set. Everything's good. No. Riches are uncertain. (laughs) 2020. Riches are uncertain. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Set your hopes on God. Who richly provides us. Now watch the next line. What should their attitude be? He provides us with everything to enjoy. So enjoy God's blessings and don't feel guilty about it. Yeah, but what about those other Christians over there? They say it's simple to be like, they need to read their Bible. God has given you these things and part of it is to enjoy those good things. But it doesn't stop there. Timothy tells them this. They are to do good, do good, and be rich in good works to be generous and ready to share. Generous, ready to share. If they'll do those things, this opportunity will help them. They'll be storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Do you catch what he's saying? Don't be haughty. Don't put your trust in them. They can come and they can go. You better keep trusting in the Lord. He's the one who provided it to you. By the way, he gave it to you because he likes you and he loves you and it's a blessing and you ought to enjoy it. But you need to be generous with it and you need to share. But notice, sharing and being generous... There you go. It's not enough. You need to do good works. Like, yeah, but I just, I'd just rather swipe or write a check. Or can I, can I give them just maybe $100? Like, do good works too. So don't just be generous in your giving. you got to be generous in your work. It's all tied together. And if you'll do that, that faithfulness in this opportunity as God's steward, is gonna, you're going to really like what ends up happening. So how are you doing? If you're sitting there going, boy, I hope the wealthy are really paying attention. Because all I make is $50,000 a year. Oh, we just got back from Uganda, which the latest numbers, Brother Larry, is they make how much a year? 500, wasn't it? Around, maybe it's a little higher, but a recent, about 500 a year over there. So they're not wealthy. Most all of us in here are wealthy compared to most of the rest of the world. So what's our attitude? Would you write this down? God gives his people his resources to further and advance his kingdom. I know that's a really simple thing. We're back in Acts. We're talking about this lady. And here she's using her house and opening her house. And there's this prayer meeting that's been going on. And man, there's a lot of people now. It's the last night. And so no doubt they've been praying all along. But probably maybe the most people are here. I'm again reading between the lines. A lot of people are here on the last night. So I've got to ask you, all of us, the position, the positions God has put you in, are you leveraging those for the kingdom? Your resources, resources, God has given various resources. Are you using those to further the kingdom? Are you enjoying them? Great. Are you advancing the kingdom? The money that God has given you and can, because of the text, can I really, let's anchor here just for a moment, Your house. Is your house being used to further the kingdom? And this is where I'm going to insert this. You ladies in particular. I think the final ladies Bible study this year. I believe is the one about hospitality. And you ought to take that. And Deanna will talk about using your various resources. And how to be hospitable. And different ways. And you 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 ought to sign up for that. And in that you're going to see uses of your house. So here's what I'm going to ask you. 
the house God has given you, are you being a good steward of it? And you're like, well, this sounds great what this lady does, but I can never do that. My place is a wreck. Are you being a good steward of the house that God has given you? Isn't that convenient? And now you're thinking, did I, I wasn't even planning on saying that. Now you're thinking, did I seriously go to church and he's going to preach at me at my dirty house, my messy house? If that's your crux, why you can't ever use your house for the Lord, well, clean it up. Clean the house. If that's the deal breaker for you. This week, I'm in my Bible, in my private reading, and I'm, my, the plan I have for the New Testament has me in Mark, and so I'm going through the parable of the sowers. You remember that? And so, sowers sowing, and some falls on the wayside, and some on the stony ground, and some on the thorny ground. You remember what the thorny ground is? The thorny ground represents those who've been exposed to the message and the word and the gospel of God, but they don't respond properly because the seed has been choked out by these thorns, and the thorns are cares and riches and pleasures of life. And so one of the things we find is these very things, our resources and our positions and our money and our house can become a distraction from serving God. So I want to ask you, only you and your people in your house would know the answer to this. Your house. I've got three categories. I want you to put yourself in one of them. Maybe uh, There may be a fourth, but can you put yourself in one of these three categories? Number one, is your house neutral? Neutral. So what does that mean? Is this you? Jeff, at our house, we store our food, we keep our food, we fix our food and we eat it. We store our clothes. It's where we sleep. We take our showers and baths there. We wash our clothes. It's where we get in out of the rain and out of the cold and out of the heat. It's our little escape from the world. Okay? Neutral. Second category, is this you? Is your house a distraction that is keeping you from advancing the kingdom of God? Now, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying if you do a renovation at the house. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about doing an addition. Somebody in here, surely, I, don't, I literally don't know anybody, but surely somebody's doing one or has planned on one, set aside some money, and now you're going to go home. We're not supposed to do the addition on that. I am not talking about that. Please understand that. What I'm talking about, have you ever seen the person that like, the house, it dominates everything. I got the house. I got the yard. I got the vacuuming, the cleaning. And there's always this other stuff like ever-expanding, ever-enhancing, like that really doesn't need to be done, but we got to redo. It's like non It's like you are the Biltmore House and Gardens. You've got this 20-year plan, and, man, you've been on it. And one day, one, somehow, I am going to serve the Lord, but for now i got the house and the yard. You know, I'm trying to catch up with Biltmore. I can't, I can't serve God because we got this 20-year plan, and it's soaking up all your money and all your time. Third category, just in your heart, not being arrogant, proud, just being honest. Is your house an asset that is being used to further the kingdom? The cat's not in the bag. The cat's out of the bag, and I'll be making it more clear at the end of our budget vote. We're moving toward home groups. 2024, I'm excited about it. Not just, hey, you said, yeah, we did the fall home groups. Uh, we're going year-round with some breaks built in. We're going every other week. All the details are not finalized. 
What do you have to have to have home groups? Homes. Oh, yeah, there's that. There is that. I don't know what's going to happen. And I promise you, I did not look for, I need a good text to kind of guilt people. <laughs> promise you. But as I'm reading this, I'm like, man, this lady uses her house for the Lord. Listen, do not just blow by this lady using her house for God. Don't just blow by that. And I am not putting, I don't want anybody going home and feeling an emotional and a pressure like, okay, I guess I need to. No, that's hard work. It's extra work. You've got to be extra flexible. Potentially, we're talking about 20 times a year maybe, people coming in your house for a couple hours. This isn't easy. Probably gonna have a little setup, and you may have some cleanup after it's over. And then, like, I am not, I'm saying, don't just blow by what. When Peter gets out of prison, he knows where to go. And he goes, and sure enough, there's a prayer meeting going. You know what that tells me? This lady's house, a wealthy lady, God had blessed her, her mindset, we're gonna use my house. Apparently, it was a hub for the church, it was a hub for the apostles. That's Peter. I know that voice. Hey! This lady's on it. What a great example. Not easy, but she's using her assets and resources for the Lord. Most commentators believe that when the apostles were praying in chapter 1 in the upper room and there were 120, probably this lady's house. The Last Supper, probably this lady's house. Her attitude, God gave it to me. I'm using it. Him. We'll not get to the fourth point this morning, but to the fifth, but would you notice lastly, let's at least get this far. Number four, the church practiced corporate prayer. The church practiced corporate prayer. <clears throat> Verse number five, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Verse 12, when Peter realized what was going on, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. I'm sorry to word it this way. I don't have the person's name. All I know is it's not original to me, and that's why I said someone has said. Would you write it down? It's been said prayer is the church's arms. It's how she fights her battles. Prayer is how we fight. Y'all know how the church fights? We fight with very specific passages for specific issues, Ephesians chapter 6, but also in Ephesians 6, and we're fighting not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, spiritual wickedness in high places. We're fighting against that, and we use specific passages of the Word of God to fit, and we use prayer. Prayer is how the church fights. So, y'all have heard me talk about three kinds of prayer there is private prayer closet prayer. There's daily walking with the Lord, daily fellowship prayer, which we talked about earlier. And then there's this corporate prayer. Which one of those prayers is important? All of those are important. Corporate prayer is important. If you take a note, write this down. Corporate prayer, and I'm not taking time to defend it, is commanded in the New Testament. Corporate prayer is modeled in the New Testament over and over. And yet somehow, sadly, corporate prayer is Highly neglected in many churches. I had the word most churches, but I didn't want to be presumptuous. I know this. Corporate prayer is neglected in many churches. I dare say most churches. You say, Jeff, what about Graceview? Well, I'll be honest with you. We don't do a lot of corporate prayer during this time slot, do we? We don't. This is not our time slot for corporate prayer. 
You're like, well, when does Grace View do corporate prayer? Well, I was in one yesterday with 20-some guys over in the student center, and then I got with, we had the best group, my little group of, group of five, and you other men should be saying, oh, no, no, our group, okay. I'm glad you think that. We had the best group, right? No. We, it was mostly thanksgiving and praise, and at the end, ours kind of broke out in a little edification time. It's great. Not to embarrass you, just for information, any ladies here this morning, we're in a prayer time, a corporate prayer time. Would you raise your hand? Any ladies in here? Hands up. I'm looking about six, seven, eight that are in here. It's important. Praying churches are powerful churches. Corporate prayer, not just the other two. This is important. It's commanded. If we were to make corporate prayer opportunities for you, would you take part in it? You say, how would we do that? Home groups are coming. And one of the three or four main components of home groups, yeah, one of them is going to be, you know what? Before you head home, have like real prayer. Pray together. And I'd love it if we have all across Anderson groups that are praying together. Prayer is important. Corporate prayer is important. Let me finish with this thought. Look at verse number 14 and 15, and I admit to you, it's confusing. Okay? Let's just. What am I supposed to do with this? They're praying. Woohoo! They are praying. Recognizing Peter's voice, verse 14, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. God's answered our prayer. They said to her, you're out of your mind. (laughs) What am I supposed to do with that? I'm throwing this out. I'm not saying I'm going to throw it out, and then I'm going to get to what we we can safely do with that. Throwing this out. Could it be, and I'm not, this kind of bothered me, like, Lord, what what is this? What is verse 15? That's like. That should not have happened. And it's nonsense about, oh, it's his angel. Like, man, they have wrong thinking there. You answered their prayer and they're denying it. Like, what in the world? Could it be? Has this ever happened to you? God answers your prayer, but he does it a little different than you thought he was going to do it. Has that ever happened? God answered the prayer. Maybe in their mind they had set tomorrow. Herod's going to have a change of mind, and Herod's going to release him. He's out. He's out. What are you doing, honey? He's out. Hey! Could you picture this poor girl going in that room? 4, 4.30 in the morning. Hey! And you're trying to pray. Rhoda. What? Rhoda. What? You see what you're... I know. I'm telling you don't have to pray anymore. Honey, that's out of line. This is not funny. No, 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 he's, he's at the gate. Girl, you've lost your mind. It's late. You need to go get some sleep. Have you, have you been eating something? Have you been eating? You've been drinking something? What, what in the world's got in your head? No, 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 really? And they just kept putting it down and putting it down. So here's my dilemma, and I have two thoughts to finish this morning. Thought number one, if you're right, taking notes. I know this much. This text clearly, listen to me, clearly connects Peter's deliverance 
with their prayer. I know that much. His deliverance, it's not just an accident. Verse 5, but Peter, so Peter's kept in prison, but the church was praying. Verse number 12, he goes over there and many people are praying. So there is a connection between his being delivered, being released, being rescued, and they're praying. So here's what that tells me. At least to some level, they have faith. There is a level of faith involved in their prayer. And I think that's a note that you have. So they at least have some level of faith. There's a connection. They're praying his deliverance. It worked. So there's some level of faith that is there. And really the best one that I found this week, who thankfully he bailed me out, not knowing what to do, Wearsby ends up giving the best I saw. Imperfect, but... So would you just hear this first? Hear it first. Hear this first. Wearsby writes, We must face the fact that even in the most fervent prayer meetings... There is sometimes a spirit of doubt and unbelief. Even in the most fervent prayer meetings, we've got to face the facts. There's sometimes a spirit of doubt and unbelief. It's the last night. We've been praying. What if God doesn't? And so they're praying again. But now here comes your note. And I know you see it, but I want you to just hear it first. Here's what he writes. These Jerusalem saints believed That God could answer their prayers. He's right. They believed. So they kept at it night and day. They kept at it night and day. This is what. Why would I get up when I got up this morning? Why would I have like three different prayer times this morning? Why would I do that? I got other stuff I could be doing. They had other stuff they could do. We do that because we really believe God can do this. Wearsby is right. These Jerusalem saints believed that God could answer their prayers. So they kept at it night and day. Why y'all do it? Because we believe. But, other side of the coin. When the answer came right to their door, they refused to believe it. So here's, where's me? What are the takeaways? There are two takeaways. Here they are. They believe, but the answer comes and they don't accept it. Two takeaways. Number one. God graciously honors even the weakest faith. It was literally in one of the songs. I forget which one. The one that we opened up with. These altars in the wilderness where our prayer was so weak. And yet God still. This is literally what we are looking at this morning. So you can see that that song has a biblical basis. What are our takeaways from this? God graciously honors even the weakest faith. But what's the second part of his takeaway is this. He writes, but how much more he would do if we would only trust him. The idea there, trust him more. He's done a lot, and he honors even weak faith. So pray, you're like, but my faith isn't strong. Ask God for more faith. Keep digging in the word of God. Rehearse it over and over. Let the word of God build your faith. Pray with what faith you have, and let God answer that and build more and more faith. But his final takeaway is, how much more would God do if we would trust him more? And so I kind of... For time's sake, we have a meeting. We're just going to unplug right there. But I'm going to give you one last quote. It's a fellow named N.T. Wright. And he's just honest. You ready? 
N.T. Wright writes the following about this scene, quote, and you may be like, is this guy sick in the head? Is he sick in the head? He says, I find all this strangely comforting. Like, what do we do? Like, these people, they say God, this girl's out of their mind. She's trying to tell them God's answered their prayers. No, you're crazy, girl. He's not out. Wright says, I find all this strangely comforting. Partly because Luke is allowing us to see the early church for a moment, not as a bunch of great heroes of the faith, but as the same kind of muddled, half-believing, faith one minute, doubt the next sort of people as Christians we all know. I would only change one word of that quote. Here's the quote again. He's just being honest. I find this strangely comforting. Partly because Luke is allowing us to see the early church for a moment, not as a bunch of great heroes of the faith, but as the same kind of muddled, half-believing, faith one minute, doubt the next sort of people as Christians we all are. That's what I would say. This is me. I'm glad it's not you. You guys have great faith all the time when you pray. This is me. God, please. Yes, he did it. Thank you, Lord. Next time, Lord, Lord, Lord. Lord, Lord, where, where, Lord, oh, yeah, there, Lord, would, would you, probably not, like, I hate that, I wish you had a better pastor, he just described me, muddled, half-believing, faith one minute, doubt the next, this is us, so we're going to stop at a strange, awkward point, and we'll pick up there next week, would you bow your heads just for a moment, just before we leave, I do have to ask you this, is there a specific promise of God that you need to like sink your teeth into because you've been really anxious really worried maybe you've tried to tell yourself oh like worrying's a good thing no planning is a good thing worry is sin to worry is sin is there something in your life you like it just has you so bent out of shape all the time in bundled up in knots inside is there a specific promise of the Bible you need to just let your teeth onto and just rehearse it over and over till it literally affects your blood pressure, your heart rate, your sleep, your shoulders, physiologically in a way you can't fake it? Secondly, just before I pray, is there a blessing of God in your life that you're like, you know what, I need to be a better steward of that. I'm going to give an account to God and I don't think I've done what he wants me to do. And you just need to right now just pray, Lord, I'm giving that to you. Would you, with, with your help, please help me to use it to further the kingdom. You gave it to me not just to enjoy, but to share and be generous. I don't want to be ashamed when I face you. And then lastly, please remember that corporate prayer is commanded and modeled. So, Father, as we close in prayer this morning. This is a strange text. It's been a strange sermon. So I pray that some of these principles that we've been hitting at would affect us, that you would cause it to come up in our minds and that we would be impacted as Mike opened in prayer this morning and in his opening, that we'd be different. Let us not just leave the same. Let your word affect us. Father, I pray that we've rightly divided your word and I pray that if so, that we would sink our teeth into these truths be like Mary and be like Peter not be like the people who doubted when you answered their prayer 
So, Father, I pray for us as we go out this week that we'd honor you with great faith and prayer. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. We got a men, a, gr- a men's small group meeting right over here, I believe it was. If everybody that is a member, let's give you like six minutes, six minutes or so. If you have children, we need you to get them so those people can be relieved. And then members will be right back here in about six minutes. All right.